o lasso. So I've just asked um, one of my co-workers back in Santa Barbara uh, to post a bunch of notes on the shamata.org website. It's very easy to find. Uh, and that would include a whole chart someone wrote up a year or two ago showing the interrelationships among all of the four measurables and the near enemies, the far enemies, and everything all laid out in nice chart form. So that's already prepared. Uh, and I just often kind of assume people know that already, so maybe a false assumption. But that will be available. All of my notes on the four measurables available. I have two rather elaborate sets of notes that I often use, uh, standardly use for one-week retreats on shamatha, both laying out the nine stages, all of that, three methods. That'll be posted. And then another whole set of notes just for good luck on the four applications of mindfulness. So those are all available. All I have to do is go on the internet, okay? Hopefully helpful. And I was looking to see if I had anything else to say. I even kind of went, nothing coming out. I think I've told you everything I know that is relevant. So then I'm finished. So let's just practice in quiet. Let's begin with any questions, lingering points of uncertainty, observations, insights, realizations pertaining to the four measurables. Anything coming up? Start with Quinn. Good morning. Good morning. With the four measurables, we've been developing the tendency to aspire to help others and wish their well-being. Mm -hmm. In my life, I haven't really felt that has been a problem, probably because I've been ignorant of it, my lacking. But what I've truly felt lacking in is knowing actually how to help people. Yeah. Um, certainly, if somebody has a broken leg or uh, needs a meal, that's quite obvious. But mm -hmm. when confronted with somebody having a nervous breakdown or yeah. um, I think the answer to this is probably wisdom and skillful means. But I wonder what aspects of Dharma speak to learning and developing those qualities. Mm -hmm. And more specifically, if there's a first aid guide to specific ailments like camels who've lost their young or I miss that. Camels who've lost their young. I've lost I, I don't understand it all. Camels. Camel? Like a hump? Uh huh. Like when they camel. lose their children they cry. Oh cry. yes, wait, now I understand. Yes. yes. It's a mother camel. I, I think the father camel could care less. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first part of the big question. Yeah, but, uh, I, I want to know the linkage. Uh, what was the relevance to the the weeping camel? How do you provide support for such a, ah. a suffering? Yeah. It's the, it's the more subtle forms of suffering that... Yeah. How oh, do very you good. Very heartfelt question. Very heartfelt question. And Buddhism seems largely for me to be developing oneself, to be available for others. And other fields of science are, are for developing uh, yourself to be available to others. Like you could be a paramedic or a yeah. veterinary or right. so on and so forth. But right. the path of Buddhism is for others, w developing one's own liberation. But three countless eons is a long time to wait for before helping others. Wonderful, wonderful. Three, of course, it's not three countless eons of just developing yourself and then, you know, 
three countless eons later, okay, folks, I'm ready. But rather the whole path is one of breathing in and breathing out, of focusing on your own practice, purifying your own mind, purifying one's own conduct. It starts with ethics. So just really bringing in the monitoring, the introspection to observe, to tend to our own way of behaving in the world, behaving with the others, with, with other sentient beings, with the natural environment. So the first thing is damage control. As we're just observing our own behavior, what we're already doing, where all the habits are. I think I really love the question. It's a wonderful question. And strikes me as being so enormously important that we start from the ground up, because it's easy to skip that. And I must say, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, it's easily to skip it. The lamas, they always emphasize this, but nevertheless, it's easy because in Tibetan Buddhism especially, there are so many empowerments and oral transmissions and esoteric teachings of one sort or another that it's very easy to get caught up there and then not even, you know, and then kind of not be aware of or not maybe sufficiently aware of. I'm speaking from first-person experience. I'm not pointing my finger at other people. So to take this absolutely from the ground up, and that is, as we first even raise the question you just have, heartfelt question, marvelous question for life, then, all right, I'd like to be of service to others, I'd like to help others, but maybe the first thing I should think about is not harming others. Because <laughs> that's going in the opposite direction. So at least we're not going in reverse, you know? And so therefore, cultivating mindfulness and introspection, cultivating wisdom about what does and does not constitute helpful behavior, wholesome behavior, and what, you know, and how, how are we helping and harming others. So that's the first step, to really to monitor the way we use our bodies, our speech, our minds, to first of all see, all right, at least, I often think of this, if anybody wastes money on my tombstone, which they really shouldn't, that rock could be used for something much more useful. But if I were to have a tombstone, which I hope I don't, if they just write, Alan Wallace is dead, he was a pretty harmless guy. I think that's a step in the right direction. <laughs> That'd be good, you know. All right, phew, I made some progress in this lifetime. Pretty harmless. I mean, not entirely harmless, but, you know, all things considered, relatively speaking, eh, pretty harmless. That'd be good, all right? And so there we are, try to be as harmless as we possibly can, 24 hours a day. And then see about, you know, being of help, of service. Now, where we see the momentum of the world, and it's been true, I think, for all of recorded history, certainly very true now, is when people think of helping, the emphasis overwhelmingly tends to be, way beyond 99%, of helping people, helping to alleviate people's hedonic suffering, which is so important. This is the suffering, you remember, from encountering adversity, ill health, having no education. Uh, repression, oppression, lack of human rights, lack of food, shelter, clothing, medical care, education, and so forth, all of that. And so there's a lot of suffering that comes because of circumstances that we encounter. And so a lot of, a lot of effort, billions and billions of dollars, and who knows how many man and woman hours go into helping to alleviate hedonic suffering. Enormously important. And then, then how many billions of dollars go into trying to provide us with hedonic pleasure, you know, nice places to live, good cl clothing, entertainment, and so forth and so on. So the, the, the vast current of samsara, of the of mundane world, is all about finding hedonic pleasure and avoiding hedonic unhappiness, or pain, suffering, misery. 
And Dharma, it's not just, about, it's not just Buddha Dharma. I, I, I love the word Dharma because it's not confined to Buddhism, although Buddhism is all about Dharma. And Buddhism is, Dharma is really fundamentally at its core, knowing that a lot of the hedonic stuff is being taken care of, then addressing genuine unhappiness. When we look around and say, I really don't think I can blame anybody on the dissatisfaction, the restlessness, the sense of ill at ease, the anxiety, sometimes depression, the sense of emptiness, the sense of alienation, the sense of sometimes hopelessness, and so forth, that you can't say, okay, who done it? Who done it? Who can I blame? And you're looking at it, I don't think I, I don't think I can blame this on anybody. This is authentic unhappiness. And so what do you deal with that? And so again, the hedonic response is, okay, well, get your mind off of it, you know, and get involved, in, you know, get a hobby, take a drug, watch more television, do something, you know. So there are hedonic responses to genuine unhappiness. And it's always just a band-aid, right? So if Dharma is good for anything, it's good for that. And Dharma, I'm totally persuaded, is good for anything. And that is the more we can learn about Dharma. You know, just learn, study, gain greater understanding about the nature of the mind, the afflictions of the mind, the virtues of the mind, how to transform the mind. And in conjunction with transforming our behavior, then we can be, number one, we can use ourselves as the first guinea pig, the first test subject. Okay, if these teachings are any good. Is shamatha any good? So I think you now know. If it's not any good, definitely find something else. I'm not a shamatha junkie to the extent that if you practice it, you get no benefit. Well, then just keep with it, you know, because it's my way or some ridiculous thing like that. No, practice is helpful. Shamatha is designed to be helpful. If it's not, then find something else, please. And likewise, the four measurables. If they really do, slowly, slowly, maybe quickly, quickly, but open up the heart to greater empathy and so forth, then that's what it's for. So the first thing is alleviating genuine unhappiness, because that really, it's got a real, it has teeth. It really bites. And then, again, through study, reflection, practice, then learning, well, what are the actual causes of ha genuine happiness? Or, to put it another way, that's the developmental response, and the discovery response is, how can I, or what can I stop doing? There's a good question. I love that one, because I always love to do less myself. But what can I stop doing to stop blocking my own internal resources of genuine happiness, a sense of serenity, of peace, of contentment, of fulfillment, even of bliss, of sanity, of clarity, of mindfulness? What can I do to stop impeding that? Because, after all, I have a Buddha nature. So what can I, how can I get out of the way and let it fully rise up and engulf my whole being? So it's all of Dharma, the study of Dharma, reflecting upon Dharma, practicing Dharma, and being aware in terms of the four measurables, this crucial point, that we can cultivate it broadly speaking in two ways. One is on the cushion, where we're imagining sentient beings, maybe we're imagining visualizations, and so forth. And the other one is through sheer enactment. So I know one woman, I'll, I'll mention her name, his name is Beth Goldring, Beth Goldring. I've been in correspondence with her off and on for years now. She's been spending many, many years up in the north of Thailand helping people with AIDS. She run, and she's living in really, really primitive circumstances, but she's just there, she's just giving and giving and giving and giving. I think she really asks for nothing in return. I'm sure she has probably enough to eat, but it's going to be pretty basic. But that's how she's cultivating loving kindness and compassion. It's just living it, you know. And she's primarily addressing hedonic suffering, enormously important. She's there not only for, for, for people dying of AIDS, but there for her fa their families and so forth, and all the grieving, the sorrow that goes with that, the stigma perhaps around that. 
And so there are many cases of that. So there, there are many, many people, in religious and not religious and so forth, who are cultivating these qualities of loving kindness and compassion by living it, by, 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 by through active engagement. So I wouldn't say that's better. I would just say that's a viable way to cultivate these qualities. But you put your, but you, but you put your finger on it, and that is the, an, the short answer to your question is the one you've already given, cultivation of wisdom and skillful means. Now, so that would be the response. Just learn Dharma. Learn as much Dharma as you can. Practice as much as you can. Be of service. Having times, I mean, just generally, this is a good theme, of having times to withdraw, whether it's one hour in the morning for your own private practice, whether it's on a weekend to go into solitary retreat, whether it's a month, whether it's six months or a year. Coming in, breathing in, and really seeking to bring about as much meaningful transformation within as possible. And then when you feel, all right, my cup runneth over, or at least my battery is charged sufficiently, then breathe out and do your best, offer, offer your very best in the world. So that's an overall good theme, and that's what I would suggest. Now, having said that, I'm going to raise the bar. But raise the bar only because the teachers of the lineage that I'm passing on have raised the bar. Atisha, a thousand years ago, he says, if you've not developed ex extrasensory perception, you really can't help people. <laughs> Now, everything you said, Atisha was, he was a brilliant man, and he was very much engaged with the world. Uh, he, I think, would recognize the truth of everything you said, and that is without achieving extrasensory perception, uh, can you help people with a toothache and a myriad of other problems of, in terms of alleviating hedonic suffering and helping people with hedonic happiness? No question about it. You don't need to meditate. You don't need extrasensory perception. But when it comes to what Dharma is all about, of getting to the root of suffering, addressing genuine suffering, and getting to the root of genuine happiness and letting that flow unimpededly. For that, just as a doctor, especially, well, let's, let's take the traditional case <clears throat> without going into modern technology. Traditional Tibetan medicine. I've had a lot of exposure to it because of living with Dr. Yeshudan and so on. So, the doctor brings his whole lab with him. His whole lab is his, his whole body, his mind, and especially the tips of his fingers. And his chopstick. Got to have a chopstick. And that is, I mean, I saw Yishu Dunning, as I translated for him countless times, uh, when Westerners would come to him for consultations, for treatment, eye diagnosis. And there he was. He would uh, ask people to come in and bring in their, their morning jiren, like a cup full. He'd put it in a white a white porcelain little cup. You just pour it in, and then he'd stir it with a chopstick. And then look at it. It takes two years to master that, how to look at urine. He could do it probably as well as anybody on the planet. Um, and I won't give you all the details of it. I don't even know all the details. But then, so he would do that. But he would do that after taking the pulse, where he's putting three fingers on your pulse road hitting them to the left and the right and working on the surface and in depth and picking up numerous vital organs within your body, testing them, and then doing it on the other side. So he's picking up 12 points within the body. And he would do that, and, we, and you just watch him, and he just go into samadhi, practicing that. And then on, on the basis of that, the things that he could tell about people's past, you know, their history, the symptoms they're experiencing now, and the kind of food they were eating and so forth. It looked like he must be clairvoyant, and he might have been, but he never claimed to be. 
He said, no, this comes from very, you know, sufficient training. So the point here is that, and then he'd look at the tongue, he would look at the face, maybe the eyes, some questions, but it was often the question um, like, have you been a lot, eating a lot of sweets over the last month or so? Do you drink coffee? Are you sleeping well? I, I kind of, do, are you sleeping well? Uh, would you, were you living in a cold, damp climate a year ago? That kind of questions. They tend to be leading questions. Um, and, then, and then as he was asking his questions, people's jaws would go, how did you know that? How could you possibly know that? So what I'm getting at is this, that through his very skillful training, and he was trained to be a doctor from the age of seven, I think, and now I think he's about 87. So he must be maybe the longest practicing doctor on the planet. Um, he's amazing. He's still alive. I'm so happy. Um, but if he couldn't do any diagnosis, if, if he said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you my pulse, and no, you can't look at my urine, and I can't look at my tongue either, and I'm going to put a bag over my head, you can't see my face, so now tell me what's wrong, and how can you help me, and what medicine should I take? That could be a bit difficult. It be difficult. They had an international, I'm going to meander just for a second. They had an international conference on medicine in Tibet. A long time ago, hundreds of years ago. Had people coming from China, from Mongolia, from India, from Persia. So I don't know how they arranged this. It might have taken a long time. And then people, of course, all traveling by caravan, horse, camel, and so forth. And they had a contest. I think it really happened. They had a contest. Because all of the different traditions had their own particular traditions for taking pulse. India, China, Tibet, Mongolia, and so forth. And so they had this contest, who could be the most accurate of taking pulse? And the, and the, the highest level, it was almost like Jeopardy, you know? Okay, do this, do this, but now here's the highest one. They had a person just hold a string, and, and, and the string was then connected to the wrist of somebody who was behind a screen. And you hold the screen, you hold the string, and then from the string, you can hold it taut, and then pick up the pulse through the string, and then give a diagnosis. Right? And so the story goes that so they got to the you know, highest level, the fin finest, oh, who's, who's the greatest master of this, kind of the highest level. And, uh, and one of the great doctors, I don't know from which country, probably Tibet, because they always win, um, holding in the string and tending very closely and said, that's not the pulse of a human being, that's the pulse of a chicken. They pull back the screen and they tie, tie the string around the leg of a chicken. <laughs> All right, that was a long-winded analogy. A Tibetan doctor has something like clairvoyance of what's going on. I mean, really deep inside. Speaking of, they speak of the pulse as being like a messenger. The urine can give so much immense amount of information. And that's with an eye, you know, looking at it, but with a tremendous store of understanding. And in that way, be able to diagnose and then sense which compounds of herbs would be the most effective. And they have hundreds to draw from. And a single pill will have 35, 100, 100 ingredients in it, one single pill. And then you take maybe one kind of pill in the morning, another in the afternoon, the other evening, and all of those are balancing. So you can imagine the, the massive amount of knowledge and wisdom needed to do the diagnosis and then choose this and this combination, right? But all of that is based upon the doctor's ability to have a really an insider's look on your body through the pulse, through the urine, and then thirdly through interrogation and looking at the face. So in a similar fashion, what Atisha, that was a long tangent, but I find it interesting, and I like to ramble. 
because I don't have anything else to say, so I just tell stories, you know. Um, if you have clairvoyance, then if you can actually observe another person's mind, certainly you won't do that out of curiosity, because people's minds, in my impression, are not that interesting. But if you do it out of compassion, like the doctor was not really curious about, you know, how's your liver? You know, he just wants his help. And so if you have that ability to attend to others', others minds, peer inside, out of pure benevolence, to simply see how can I be of service? What are, in this particular case, in this unique case, every single individual being utterly unique, in this unique case, when would be the right time to give what teaching and what combination? In other words, a master physician to treat authentic or genuine suffering and to bring it to genuine happiness. Atisha says, you know, if that's your task, you want to be a true physician to heal people so they can venture out onto the path of awakening and become truly healed, which means irreversibly healed, then for that you've really got to have clairvoyance. You know, that's what he said. And for that, and then he proceeds, and having said that, he said, if you do have such existential perception, then the merit you can accumulate in one day is greater than the merit you can accumulate in a 100 lifetimes. And the merit is not just some piggy bank or some, you know, like a, a portfolio. It really is indicative of how much benefit can you bring, out, bring about in the world. That's what merit is all about. How much benefit can you do? How much can you bring? More in one day than a hundred lifetimes, he said, if you have extrasensory perception with the motivation of bodhicitta and all of that, in other words, thoroughly couched in dharma. And then he said, in order to achieve extrasensory perception, he said, well, it won't arise unless you have achieved shamatha, therefore achieve shamatha. And then he said, if you don't have all the prerequisites, if you've not looked carefully, what are the prerequisites for achieving shamatha? If you've not fulfilled them, things, things like contentment, having few desires, few activities and concerns, and so forth, then even if you meditate for a thousand years, you won't achieve it. So it's sheer causality, it's sheer cause and effect. And so if on occasion, and this relates to the question yesterday of rumination, and that is so we're practicing, gosh, seven weeks all in a row. I mean, really, seven. Times seven. Only Alma's smiling. Such a short time. Such a short time. It's a time to scratch your head and then it's over. You know? So, but seven weeks, eight weeks is enough time to get familiar with the practices. And it's enough time to become impatient at one's lack of progress. <laughs> but when one recognizes the significance of what we're doing, you're trying to make your sane as exquisite, so make your mind as exquisitely sane as possible. That's not going to be a seven-week job. We've had decades to screw ourselves up. And so, to attend to this, but as one is practicing, not just focusing on technique. Do I have? Did I'm doing the counting right? Am I settling the breath in its natural rhythm? Not just be a, a lab te technician when it comes to practice, but also to step back. Okay, what's the broader context? Little things like, all right, when I'm really devoting myself, I mean, I want to say this, because it's very important. And this is all a response to your question. When it comes to shamatha, in contrast to the four immeasurables, the four immeasurables, you just practice them all the time, as much as you possibly can, whether you're in retreat, but very much so when you're out in the world. It's all good. And you don't need any special environment, right? On the subway, when you're in the dentist's office, and, and when you're in the shopping market, there's just no time when you can't practice the four measurables. I think the only time is, you know, when you're comatose. 
or you're, you know, slipped into the substrate. But apart from that, you can practice it at any time. And then likewise for shamatha, to bring in that sense of ease, stillness, and clarity whenever you can throughout the day, seasoning the day as many, many times as possible. It's all good. It's just kind of a great, how do you say, a great affirmation of sanity. I don't know what else to call it. And so this is good. And whether you're practicing for one hour a day, two hours a day, tw- one gatika a day, this is all moving towards you know, greater sanity. A comment that I, uh, in reference to what I said yesterday, and that is if you're really feeling totally stressed out, the infirmary, and then on and on through the different sequence of shamatha practices, it's very easy to think that you know, when the mind is really very, very active, maybe you've just come off of the email, or you're planning this, planning that for the future, and just the mind, there's a lot of rumination, and you say, okay, now I'm going to go, I'm going to go into the supine position, and then I'm going to breathe out and try to relax all of that out, settle the respiration in its natural rhythm, and arouse it, but gradually subdue the rumination and restore the coherence of my attention, of my mind. But then if you've just come from a lot of turbulence, you know, just a lot of activity, and then you practice for your 24 minutes or whatever, and you may feel, oh, man, the rumination went through the whole practice. That was a waste of time. Bummer. I suggest it's not a waste of time. And that is, with every breath, you're gently restoring the mind to balance. So if you're bringing a very turbulent mind into it, to to the practice, and then you gradually, gradually subdue it, then that's moving in the right direction. You are, you know, you are calming and stabilizing the mind. So this is why it's so important not to take hedonic criteria to judge the efficacy of your practice. That is, you know, did the, did the ruminations stop or not? But rather, what was the commitment, the dedication, the focus on the practice? Were you doing as well as you can? The eudaimonic, what you bring to reality, not what reality brings to you. And so I would not lose heart. I would not, you know, check, check, it, check it out. And don't take this as dogma, certainly not on my authority. But if your mind is very turbulent, emotionally upset or what have you, and then you practice for a while, half an hour, one hour, and so forth, you may feel that that session, the mind was still very turbulent. But then see at the end of the session, is the mind a bit calmer? Is it a bit, a bit more grounded than it was? Then that's one, that's one hour in the right direction. Rather than just putting up with it and having it spin on and OCDD indefinitely. So that's a very, very important point. So for the practice of shamatha, as we are transitioning out of this retreat setting, then it's there just to help you throughout the whole course of the day restore or, or to maintain a greater sense of mental balance than you would otherwise have. You're practicing in the morning, evening. I would suggest you take it like just in the same way that you probably brush your teeth and shower and so forth, psychological or mental hygiene. That this is something good for the day. If it's not, then find something else to do. If some other practices are more helpful to bring about a wholesome mind, to attenuate mental afflictions, to bring about greater composure, relaxation, stability, clarity. If you have other practices that you've been introduced to, or by other teachers, whatever, that's more helpful than what you've been practicing here, then skip what you, you know, drop what you're doing here. Practice, what else, practice the other ones. Because that's what counts. We're all going to die. And so most important that we cultivate our minds in helpful ways, and not just on the authority of somebody else and somebody else telling us this will be really beneficial one day, count on it. Because teachers say all kinds of things. And they contradict themselves. So it's not to say we don't trust them, but you know, we've got to see that this is landing in our lives and not just landing in a bed of blind faith. That's my very strong conviction, right? Because blind faith, ah, you didn't need to come to Buddhism for that. You could have gotten blind faith anywhere. 
So there's one approach, is just bringing it there to enhance, to increase the overall the state of emotional composure, emotional balance, cognitive balance throughout the course of the day, that your shamatha there is the, ser- the servant to the rest of your day, right? And likewise the four measurables, right? And then seeing that your whole life is gradually evolving along the path of dharma, but not if you're only practicing an hour, maybe less, maybe a bit more each day of shamatha, then not expecting in that context that you're going to just be kind of trudging your way up Mount Shamatha and achieving stage three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, when you are practicing one or two hours a day in the midst of a very busy, busy way of life. I think it's a false expectation. But if you do practice for an hour or two, can that overall bring greater composure, clarity, calm, less mental afflictions, greater virtue to the whole day? Yes. And if it doesn't, find something else to practice. Really important. I'm not that much of a Shamatha junkie. If it doesn't help, then why bother? Right? Having said that, on occasion, as you've done for these last, let's, let's call it eight weeks now, on occasion, if you'd like to take out some substantial period of time, a month, six months, a year, or just an open-ended retreat to achieve shamatha, well, this is, this is now you're not just practicing mental hygiene or trying to maintain some semblance of mental balance, but saying, hey, let's take up the Atisha challenge, and that is achieve it. And by that, achieve exosensor perception. Why not? And other paranormal abilities. Why not? If the motivation is benevolent, this is good. It'd be of greater service, right? I think the world could use it, especially when we have this, this recent epidemic of this mental virus called materialism. It's, um, very harmful. And to display some of these, these qualities in the world could be helpful. We'll see. But if you're there in shamatha retreat, then, with the intent of really, all right, now concerted, really being focused, as we have for the last eight weeks, then to evaluate in two ways. One is when you're on the cushion, how you're practicing, and according with the instruction and so forth and so on. But then also, as Atisha really cautions us, step back. The development along the path of shamatha is not simply a matter of how sharp, how clever, how efficient are you at applying the methods on the cushion. That's very important. But step back in terms of the, all the other hours of your day, in between sessions, to what extent are you just swimming in a, at a current of, of contentment, of having few desires, no entertainments, not, not going off and you know, munching on hedonic entertainments and so forth. To what extent are you maintaining really a very simple, very grounded, focused, unified mind without getting caught up in other concerns and activities? Because if you're peppering your shamatha retreat, with those, you're practicing you know, for some hours, but then you're doing this, that, and the other thing, then listen to Atisha. He said, you can practice for a thousand years and you won't achieve shamatha. You've really got to fulfill the prerequisites, and that, that is having very few concerns and activities, and then being content and having few desires as you have very few activities and concerns. Right? So I was just reading Gamachamit's account of, uh, of, of cultivation of shamatha, and he said, you've got to completely abandon all the entertainment and you just release it all. This is now not a time for hedonic anything. This is time to get totally real, 100 unified focus on the cultivation of genuine happiness through balancing the mind. So check for that. Check in between sessions. When in the classic treatises, classic oral transmission, it says, completely abandon rumination. This means you have to just be completely relentless not be kind of good on the, on, the, on the cushion, but then in between sessions, then blah, 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 you know, let the dog off the leash and running all over the place in the garbage dump of you know, rumination. 
that it's just a full, a full assault, 100% relentless assault on mental imbalance. And that's, it, that's rumination. So here we can really draw from this modern Vipassana tradition, which has some real strengths to it. That's why so many people find it beneficial. And that is they make this strong point, and it's such a good point, of all of your activities throughout the course of the day. Bring in that just ongoing flow of clear, grounded, non-conceptual mindfulness, thinking when it's useful. But otherwise, when you don't have to think, don't. Don't exhaust yourself. And eating mindfully, walking mindfully to the bathroom, this, this, whatever you're doing, that it's just total presence, total presence, and just being totally, how do you say, zero tolerance for rumination. If you're not doing that, then you're always eroding in between sessions what you're cultivating during sessions, right? That's absolutely crucial. He said, it says in Tibetan, direct, here's direct translation, completely abandoned rumination involving desires and so forth. And that is just hatchet it, no more, finito. And so if you're coming from a very quiet mind that's attending to the environment, your body, sensory, sensory fields, and so forth, but it's quiet, 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 and then quietly you sit down in your cushion, and then quietly you focus on your meditative object. That's a smooth transition, right? Whereas if you're coming in between sessions, you're going blah, 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 and then you sit down in the cushion, you're going to get a lot more blah, 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 and then you want to achieve shamatha in a thousand years. So that point, and then very pure ethics. So those are the ones always to return to. Few desires, contentment, having few activities and concerns, maintaining pure ethical discipline, body, speech, and mind, and then completely abandoning rumination involving desires and so forth. So short answer after a long answer, but it's a very important question. I sense it's very heartfelt. I'm giving you my heartfelt response. Oh, I remember, and I always feel a bit Oh, I always feel kind of, uh-oh, pause whenever I remember this. But it's from a thousand years ago, one of the Kadamba aphorisms, beloved through all of, all of Tibet, but they're just pure Dharma practice. Oh, I think there was one yogi, because this came from somebody. Don't know which one. But probably just attending like, oh, this pretty degenerate place. And he said, now is not a time to tame others' minds. Now is a time to tame your own mind. So that's what I feel. Tame your own mind. And insofar as you really taste the sweetness of dharma, the sweetness of your own internal resources, and of course, help others. But first, inside. Inside to outside. Okay? Good. Very good question. Hola, so I let that one take up the whole one because it was such a large question, such an important question. So hopefully helpful. There it is. But if we go from the inside to the outside, I think there'll be no regret. Because it's the inside that will bring with us to the dying process and beyond it. The outside stuff, that, leave, that we leave behind. Right? Family, friends, all the stuff we do in the world, all of our activities in the world, all of that gets the guillotine. Cut. You just entered the substrate. You have entered the substrate zone. Right? And everything you are doing, now it's stopped. With everything owned, you've stopped. All of your friends and relationships terminated. So now what do you have? Just your mind. So if you cultivated that, that continuum of consciousness, that's a good investment. That's a long-term investment. So, very good. <laughs>